Hey, Al Sky here for Rye Guys t-shirts. Rye Guys, that's W-R-Y guys.com. Great, irreverent, thought-provoking t-shirts upholding a pro-freedom perspective. Inspired by such classic humorists as Mark Twain, H.L. Mencken, and Oscar Wilde, they invoke the wit and wisdom of the past to satirize modern myths. These high-quality shirts for men and women look good and feel good, and they make great gifts. Use the coupon code SCOTT for 15% off. Rye Guys t-shirts at ryguys.com. That's W-R-Y guys.com. All right, y'all, Scott Horton Show. I am him. Check out the archives at libertarianinstitute.org slash Scott Horton Show. And, hey, it's our first big fundraiser and grand opening over there at the Libertarian Institute. So dig deep. You can write it off on your GD taxes. It's uh, We're a 501c3 and all of that's our big fundraiser. Please stop by libertarianinstitute.org slash support. Uh, and then that way we can keep doing things like this. Introducing... The great Gareth Porter. Welcome back to the show, Gareth. How are you, sir? Hi, Scott. I'm fine. Thanks. Glad to be back. Uh, very happy to have you here. <clears throat> Turn your mic up here. Um, hey, so you wrote the book, the book on Iran's nuclear program. Someone's questioned me the other day. Are you sure they're not making nukes, man? I said, no, nah, really. I'm sure he says, okay, I, I trust you, I guess, man, because you you know what you're talking about. I know you do, but everybody else says they are, and I'm really worried about it. Well, hey, man, read Gareth Porter. The book is called Manufactured Crisis, The Truth Behind the Iran Nuclear Scare. And then you will see. You will know. Uh, it is the book on Iran's nuclear program, Manufactured Crisis, by the great Gareth Porter, historian and investigative reporter. Uh, he writes for Middle East Eye and for Truth Out, and we republish all of it at antiwar.com and at libertarianinstitute.org. And uh, here he is. First of all, we have two important ones to talk about today. Uh, the first one is Trump's national security advisor facilitated the murder of civilians in Afghanistan. Trump's uh, new national security advisor pick, uh, you must mean Lieutenant General Mike Flynn. That's the guy. All right. So uh, what did he have to do with the war in Afghanistan, Gareth, as if I don't know? Well, he was the uh, intelligence director, the intelligence chief for both uh, General McChrystal and General Petraeus when they were commanders in Afghanistan. And of course, even before that, he was the intelligence chief for McChrystal uh, in Iraq. Um, uh, and both both McChrystal and Petraeus in Iraq, when they were um, going after al-Qaeda and the Shia militias, the, the Mahdi army, um, in, in 2006, 2007. And so in the, the story really begins um, in Iraq when he comes up with a new way of targeting uh, to, to facilitate this uh, effort to really wipe out or, or to decimate, let's put it that way, the uh, leadership organs of the command structure of these two uh, these two adversaries of the United States in Iraq. All right, now let me throw in here that when you're talking about Stanley McChrystal, it goes without saying between us, but the audience needs to be caught up. He wasn't running the whole Iraq war. He was the commander of the Joint Special Operations Command, which is the highest right. tier, uh, the first tier special forces. The SEALs Absolutely. and the Delta Force, not even the Rangers and Force Recon. They're second tier. This is the top tier special forces guys, JSOC. Precisely. And this is this is the outfit that was given the task of focusing in on the leadership structures of both Al-Qaeda and the Mahdi Army in Iraq during those years. Um, and, and so what he did was to rely extremely heavily on uh, overhead aerial surveillance, essentially drone drones uh, in the air over targets that they uh, suspected were connected with Al-Qaeda or Mahdi army. And then with that uh, over, of overhead aerial surveillance, they linked that to uh, the cell phones that uh, were somehow uh, linked to the, the location that they were focusing on. And they came up with this, this system for essentially uh, uh, assembling a target list on the basis of the intelligence that they gathered from full motion videos 
from the aerial surveillance plus the, uh, the, the linkage between any telephones within that structure, within that location, and outside it. And then they would geolocate, figure out physically where the cell phones are that linked to that place, and that would be the way that they would assemble their target list. Now, that system was apparently regarded as a great success. We don't have, as far as I know, actual uh, figures for how many people they killed or captured uh, in, in Iraq. But when they transferred that system to Afghanistan, when McChrystal was sent to Afghanistan as commander of U.S. troops there in 2009, uh, the um, I'm sorry, that was that was 2000. Yeah, 2000, 2009. Right. right. Yeah, um, exactly. 2009. Then uh, the system that they had created was was scaled up, as McChrystal liked to put it, and it became much larger, much faster, uh, and and much more dangerous. And that's really where my story comes in. And, and this, by the way, this this is a story that is really um, drawing on the, the longer piece that I published in Truth Out in 2011, uh, which was not really about Flynn, but it was about McChrystal and Petraeus. So now that Flynn has been named National Security Advisor to Trump, uh, you know, I went back and looked at the role that he played, and he was absolutely crucial. But I mean, because he was the one who dreamed up the intelligence system that was the basis for the targeting. Right. But uh, the importance of this is, of course, that this resulted in a system of night raids in Afghanistan, which were absolutely disastrous in every sense of the word. Uh, but but I detail the way in which this went off the rails so completely. Right. Uh, in Afghanistan, in my piece, in, in Truth Out. All right. Now, uh, and, and yeah, and, and and I'm glad you mentioned the previous work because, of course, as everybody should know that uh, you won the Gellhorn Award, uh, the Martha Gellhorn Award for your series. It was two or three part series that you did back in 2011 about this at truthout.org. Um, and well, basically, it, was actually, it was actually just a single piece that oh, I was submitted. It? Yeah, it, it wasn't the only piece, but I, you know, it was the it was the biggest. The piece one that got the award for it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think I think it was the most important thing. Right. Yes. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So now, so basically, what we're talking about here, we talked about it then, um, and and we've seen, you know, with the the uh, drone papers that were leaked to uh, the intercept. I don't know if they mentioned you or not, but really, all they were doing was confirming your earlier journalism and and how they do this stuff. Uh, and there's there's more and more reports coming out now about Flynn trying to give him credit and saying, you know, this was the Intel revolution. Mike Flynn yeah. had written this big paper about how our intelligence in Afghanistan sucks. We don't know who's who or who we're fighting or why or what. And so we really need better intelligence. But then, as you're describing here, basically what they came up with is a computerized conspiracy theory machine where you put in a bunch of phone numbers and then it tells you kill these people. But... It's pure garbage in, garbage out. And they even, they go, yeah, and what we'll do is we'll have, whoever we kill, we take whatever pieces of paper are in their pockets, whatever information, whatever name or phone number might be on a piece of paper in their pocket, we put that in there too. We put, in other words, like they're taking all this data, which isn't even information, it's just data, and they're putting it into the computer and then they're letting the computer do all the deciding about who's connected to who and in what ways, but... They don't really know anything to teach the computer how to figure out anything either. So it's basically right. just coming up. It's basically a computerized truther going, oh, that, yeah, Ahmed that, is tied to this guy who's linked to that guy who got some money from George Soros. Let's bomb him. <laughs> it's, that's, a nice, that's a nice way of, of depicting the, the problem, uh, Scott. I, I agree. Uh, you know, this, this is really at the center of this, of this whole story, this system of uh, of creating a target list from it, it's really called link analysis. It's a technique or a statistical program uh, called link analysis, and uh, it was very popular after nine uh, eleven. It became all the the rage within the counterterrorism community. It wasn't just Flynn who used it. It was being used by a number of places. So I, I want to make it clear that this was a much broader phenomenon within the U.S. government. But, of course, it was Flynn and JSOC who turned it into the biggest story of all. And what they did 
what, what this what this uh, link analysis program did was to turn all this metadata uh, from cell phones and uh, data from, that was gathered from the full motion videos and turn it into a picture of a network that you could see on the screen. And of course, you can imagine these targeters, you know, using this uh, software and, and seeing the network pop up like magic on their screen and, and the impact that it has on assuring them that they've got something here that's really valid mm -hmm. when in fact, um, you know, in fact, I'm, I'm really glad that you mentioned that because, you know, there used to be that website. Was it SourceWatch that used to have that the page where it, it had lines through yes. and, and connecting all the different corporations, right. the media and the different think tanks? I'm glad, I'm glad you recalled that to mind. Yeah. So that's exactly like what we're talking about. Like, oh, this guy is tied to this, is tied to that, right. is tied to this, that so, kind so of look, thing. Here's, here's so the, in other words, wait, there could be real truth in there, right? But yes, not yes, necessarily. I'm not saying, I, I, I want to make it clear, I'm not saying that you know, none of the people that they had on their, on their uh, chart of the network were, in fact, Taliban uh, people. I mean, of course, uh, a lot of them were. There's no, no question about that. But there's also no question that there was a huge amount of, uh, of, of innocent, of, of sort of uh, scouring up, uh, scarfing up innocent people in the process. And, and the key thing to know is that most of these people apparently excuse me, most of the targets, I want to make it clear, I'm talking about most of the targets, they didn't even know who they were. They were simply phone numbers. Right. Well, and listen, they told Dana Priest in uh, the series Top Secret America for the Washington Post, Dana Priest and William Arkin, that, yeah, we got, it was about 50% of the houses that we raided were even anybody we that's were looking right. for yeah, at all. Yeah, and they were bragging about that. That's a very so. good indicator. In fact, I, you know, my own estimate, not just based on that, but on the data that I got from the human rights uh, uh, organization, the, the independent human rights organization in uh, in Afghanistan, which um, was was doing the best job that they could. I'm quite convinced that they were uh, under very difficult conditions trying to gather information from the Taliban controlled zone of uh, about incidents of night raids. And they could only investigate a small percentage of the total. But based on the number of complaints that they had from that minority of uh, incidents of night raids uh, where people were killed, I estimate that, uh, that probably a half the number of people who JSOC killed in night raids were innocent. Yeah. Well, and, you know, the thing of it, too, is in context— they were supposed to be clear holding and building and counterinsurgencing and winning over the Pashtun population of Afghanistan to our side by being such sweethearts and providing <laughs> such good security for them that they would prefer us to their own sons. And yet you got Americans falling out of the sky from Black Hawk helicopters in the middle of the night raiding people's houses like the boogeyman, like Pardon me. Like I grew up hearing stories about the Nazis and the communists, the NKVD yeah. of the Soviet right. Union who would come for people in the middle of the night. And, you know, how the, the, the exiles said, if only the neighbors had stood up for them, you know, or what. And this kind of this is the definition of totalitarianism, of, of the worst kind of way that you can treat people. If you if you came up with a plan for how can we make the people of Pashtunistan hate us as much as possible, this would be it. Night raids, that's, that's, killing that's them the and, and humiliating them in front of their women and their children in their own bedrooms at three o'clock in the morning. And there's a quote that's, from my research here. I forgot where it was maybe um, from Anand Gopal, where the guy is one of the police chiefs says, you know, the Soviet Union, they came in here, they killed a million of us. but They never came in our homes at night. Right. This is this is, of course, uh, the, 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 the reason that. McChrystal himself acknowledged publicly in a uh, directive that was made public in a redacted form in 2010. He said publicly that the night raids have enraged. I don't know, know if he used that word specifically, but he made it clear that it has made everyone in Afghanistan angry at us. 
Now, I mean, that is the most astonishing admission on the part of the person who was actually carrying out the policy. He, he sponsored it. He, he uh, made the decision to increase the level of those raids fivefold. Uh, during a period of six uh, six or seven months. Well, and then once he was cashiered because of Hastings' great journalism and they brought Petraeus in, he even, what, double, triple, quadrupled the night raids after that. That's right. Petraeus, Petraeus made it much worse. And and every time you scale up, you, you increase the tempo, that means that you are forcing your targeters to add targets to the list at a rate that means that the, the, the rate of innocent people being added to the list is bound to be increased. Right. I mean, in other words, simple. just the same as quotas for the uh, NYPD. Go out there and exactly. find some black exactly. people to bring in here. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or quotas in a communist country, you know, for production. I mean, you know, some of that production is going to be phony. Some of it's going to be, uh, you know, shoddy goods, et cetera, right. et cetera. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, and exactly. I mean, it's interesting about just the economics of how that works, where he's not saying, guys, do your best in really trying to find, you know, the really isolating the networks of the Taliban leadership and marginalize this, that forget any pretense of that. Even bring me numbers, man. I want I, I want a body count like this is Vietnam. Yeah. Now, now the thing is, Scott, I mean, both I think. It's very clear that McChrystal knew that this was a bad idea. Treas knew that it was a bad idea. And Flynn knew that it was a bad idea. We, we know that Flynn's gone on record saying, yeah, well, night raids actually were not a good idea. <laughs> so, so these people were doing things that they knew were not in the national interest. Okay. And they did it anyway. Why did they do it? Because this was regarded as being good publicity for McChrystal but particularly for Petraeus, it, it was generating activity that they could say was uh, showing that we were laying it on the, the enemy. And uh, so, so it was PR. It was PR, despite the fact that they knew it wasn't working. It was having the opposite effect in the long run. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is, is the most telling point about the whole story. Yeah. Well, you know, they're just now finally getting the technology together where you can search MP3s for certain text words, right? So that we'll be able to uh, go back soon, within maybe a couple of years, maybe even sooner, Gareth. We'll be able to search for you and me t predicting and joking and talking about how, oh, hilarious, now that Petraeus is moving to CIA, I wonder how long it'll be before he tries to put out a report about how the war in Afghanistan is going <laughs> great or whatever. <laughs> And then that's exactly what happened, was he tried, and apparently the CIA analysts rebelled, but he tried to basically embed his former pet officers inside the CIA analyst group to, to report on the progress of the war. He obviously did that. I mean, he couldn't help himself. That was second nature to Petraeus by then, of course. That's yeah. just so funny, but yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know. I, I guess... I might have suspected that he would have done it in a little bit less ham-handed of a way and not get caught so easily, but it was just right there in the post for everyone to read. Um, but you know, you know Scott, the, the real significance of this story It's today, the tens and thousands it, of dead people, right? Tens of it's, thousands. of course, tens of thousands of dead people, yeah. and we have a guy who's got blood on his hands, who who is promoted to national security advisor, in theory, the guy who sits, you know, he sits right next to the president, next to the Oval Office, and has the the president's ear every day. Mm -hmm. And and the news media, you know, doesn't like Michael Flynn for reasons that have nothing to do with this because right. he's an Islamophobe and and says crazy things. But nobody ever uh, seems to think that there's anything wrong with what he did in mm -hmm. Afghanistan. In fact, it's the opposite. He's regarded as the uh, the 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 most notable or one of the leading intelligence figures of his generation. Uh, so I mean, it's it's really a story of the utter failure of the news media to have any idea of of what's going on with yeah. regard to this key figure in the new administration. Yeah, same as ever. I mean, Petraeus's only real successes were in controlling the minds of the media in New York and D.C. Yeah. 
And, yeah. you know, they just, hey, look, everybody, the surge is working. Don't ask me what that means because I couldn't explain it. But <laughs> I'm here to tell you it's working all right. And Well, of course, he, he, he used the figures uh, for the number of Taliban that he supposedly captured. Uh, I think it was uh, 1,200 or 1,300 over a period of a couple of months. And, and I found out, uh, and, and this is one of the pieces that I did in 2010, I guess it was, that uh, – or I think it was 2011, actually, that, that this, these were totally phony numbers. I mean, they were just, you know, the vast majority, 85, 90 percent of them were innocent civilians, as was do- documented in a uh, document that I got mm-hmm. on the U.S. prison uh, population in, uh, in Afghanistan. Uh, and, and every single person who was captured by U.S. forces had to be ultimately either freed or put in, in that prison. So it was dispositive evidence that he was lying. Right. Yeah, this was later in the war after so many torture scandals that they had come up with a process for reviewing the captured there that was a little bit more efficient than in previous years. In case anyone out there is confused, what? They had a review and were letting people out of jail? (laughs) Yeah, not in the Bush years they weren't. (laughs) Or maybe not in the the early ones anyway. But yes, they did end up with a process like that. And and, uh, it... uh, I'm sorry. The the name of that article is actually on the tip of my tongue right now. I was going to drop it for a footnote here, but I can't quite (laughs) recall it. But Petraeus's PR person even admitted to me on the record that, yeah, well, these were just suspects. These were these were not actual Taliban. (laughs) Well, now, listen, back to, you know, Mike Flynn being the right hand and I mean, national security advisors, everything. Right. And and especially in the incoming administration. I mean, we don't know who's going to be secretary of defense or state yet, but. There's a 99% chance that the National Security Advisor is going to be the closest person to the president on these issues. And the thing is, is Flynn's reputation is entirely wrapped up in the Afghan war, which, as we know now, in uh, the end of November 2016, as we're talking here, is completely lost. And that, in fact, the 10,000 American soldiers, airmen, mercs and spies that are in Kabul now are basically holding the government up. The Taliban rules more of the country than at any time since 2001. They control virtually the entire Helmand province and in the daytime. And they control, I mean, virtually all of Pashtunistan in the south, at least at night. And uh, we hardly have force, you know, force protection for our own guys there at this point. So then that means that the big question for the new president is, what are you going to do? Declare victory and leave or declare failure and double down and do a Barack Obama and do another surge. And so then the question is, is, what's Flynn going to tell Trump that, yeah, we tried and it was totally not worth it. So forget it. Or we did great. But then Obama sold us out. So all we all you got to do is give us another chance, boss. It's a very interesting question indeed. And I I have no idea what the answer would be. I mean, you know, here's a guy, as, as we've just been talking about, who who knows that that what he his handiwork in Afghanistan really went off the rails and and the night raids were were a terrible idea and uh and and that it hurt it hurt the overall effort um and and yet you know he was part of the team that continued this uh for years um you know who knows what he's going to tell the president and and it's it's going to be really a, one of the most interesting questions to watch i agree i mean it's it's a very uh, it's a very uh, unknowable thing to to uh, uh, ask what what Trump is going to decide about Afghanistan. If I had to guess, I would say he's not going to persist on this. I mean, there's just too much. Uh, it, it, it's too much uh, cost and effort for any return. And, and yeah. as a if nothing else, as just a businessman, his first uh, his first instinct would be, what the hell are we doing this for? Hey, I'll Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. If this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Robertson Roberts Brokerage Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium, and they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. Yeah, maybe. I sure hope you're right about that. But um, I hope so too. 
You know, it's not I'm, his money to invest. It's the taxpayer. So, well, that's true. <laughs> Just and, like and Halliburton could have never invaded Iraq, but boy, you make their but CEO it, it our turns, vice president, and they can. All right, it, it turns into a presidential albatross. So, in a sense, it right. is his money. Well, that's true. And you know, Nick Turr said that. Hey, if anyone, if any person as president could say, "What Afghanistan? We totally won that war, man. Yeah, big league. We kicked uh-huh. their ass, even though it's totally not true." It's Donald Trump. So, great. You know what? Let's. Who cares if Kabul falls and Mullah Omar's son comes in there and rules the place? Um, we'll just keep calling it a victory anyway and just stay gone. That sounds fine to me. <laughs> I mean, they already let Hekmachar in there. How long is it before Hekmachar and his uh, uh, militia overthrow the government there and take you over know, Kabul? In the case of Afghanistan, I don't think we're going to be able – I don't think they're going to be able to claim victory. Uh, you know, they're not going to be able to do a Vietnam kind of thing where, yeah, we won, but Congress took it away from us. No, that's not going to happen in Afghanistan. It's too clear. It's yeah. too clear. Well, maybe they won't have an argument. Maybe they'll just stick with the Trump line that we won and it was great. It was it was the classiest, most fabulous and fantastic yeah, win they can just ever. Say, well, our allies were too weak. We couldn't yeah. do anything. We did our best. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we'll just come up with some words. Um, all right, now listen. Here's an important story that you wrote, a very important one. It's at the Gray Zone Project at Alternet, uh, editor Max Blumenthal here. How a Syrian White Helmets leader played Western media. And this is the extremely important story of the convoy massacre, which took place one or two days. You'll explain in a second, I hope, and correct me, get me straight here. Um, uh, one or two days after the U.S. bombed the Syrian military when they were in the middle of a battle with the Islamic State, leading to the Islamic State seizing a Syrian army base, at least for a day or so, uh, before being driven back. And that came just a day or two days, I'm sure you'll correct me where I went off the story, uh, after John Kerry and Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister and the, you know, the American secretary of state and the Russian foreign minister, had worked out another ceasefire deal. And it was the American bombing of the Syrian military base and then the presumed Syrian military or Russian military bombing of this humanitarian convoy that led to the final breakdown of that second ceasefire. So this is an extremely important event that you're covering here. Extremely important event. And um, the, the more important event, as you've just laid out, was two days before that, when the uh, U.S. Air Force and its allies um, in this in this coalition um, in the Middle East uh, bombed uh, Syrian army forces uh, at Deir Azur, and uh, that's that's now a big story because the investigation report has just come out, and I will be writing about that in the coming days. So I don't want to get into that right now. But um, so it was two days after that that the uh, the con- the aid convoy was attacked, and these white helmets just happened to be right on the spot in this little town called um, uh, Umur al Kubra, and it's about 15 kilometers west of the city of Aleppo. So, um, you know, I don't know. There's never any explanation as to why they just happened to be there ahead of time. Uh, obviously, they'd been tipped off that something was going to happen. They were supposed to be there. Uh, by tipped off by the al-Qaeda authorities in uh, Aleppo because the, the white helmets work only in opposition-held territory in Aleppo, which means that they work under the authority of al-Qaeda because al-Qaeda is the overweening political military authority in that part of, of Syria. Um, so my, my story is really about the, uh, the statements that the head of the White Helmets in Aleppo, Amar al-Selmo, uh, made to Time Magazine, Washington Post, and others, but primarily to those two outlets. Um, and in a, in a video that was widely distributed, uh, the night of the convoy attack, late later that night, with fire still burning. Um, and what I found was that he basically misrepresented, lied, repeatedly about what he witnessed and what actually happened, um, clearly conveying a line which was 
preconceived uh, that that this was a Russian Syrian air attack, um, and putting forward a series of statements that were supposed to to uh, support that, and and statements which I was able by looking at all of the records having to do with this incident, it was able to show uh, definitively were simply untrue. I mean, beginning with his claim that he was an eyewitness to the first part of the, the first very first attack, which he says he saw, originally he says he saw uh, a Syrian government helicopter dropping um, barrel bombs, uh, a barrel bomb, or I can't remember if he said a barrel bomb, I think he said a barrel bomb. Um, it turns out that, of course, it was already late. It was already past the time when you could see anything. It was dark. He couldn't have possibly seen it. He, he wasn't up close. He was uh, he was far enough away so that he couldn't possibly see it. And then he changed his story the second time when he was interviewed by the Washington Post and said he heard it. <laughs> uh, and so that that's just the beginning of a whole series of such misrepresentations. Mm. Uh, the other part of it that I chronicle or, or yeah, document. go ahead and take us through some of that, please, if you could. Yeah, yeah. He he uh, basically uh, suggested that there was a uh, a series of air attacks which involved um, OFAB uh, Russian OFAB uh, bombs because he he circulated a picture that showed a crumpled tail fin of one of these Russian OFAB two hundred fifty. Uh, pound bombs um, under uh, some refuse of or uh, under under some of the the uh, uh, stuff that was in the in the aid convoy that that fell out of the truck. Um, but that makes no sense because if there was an OFAB bomb, this is a 250 pound bomb. It makes a huge uh, crater, <laughs> a crater that would be 10 foot deep and uh, 25, 30 feet wide and would have uh, cracked the wall, if not blown through it, uh, which was just a few feet away uh, in this uh, in this uh, uh, the, the big warehouse or part of the warehouse that was uh, hit. So so that was the first indication. And then the second indication, it, it couldn't have been a dud. If it were a dud, there wouldn't have been the fine uh, tears in the sacks or, or uh, boxes, I should say, that were uh, right nearby the, the, lo the, the bomb that they show in the picture, uh, those shrapnel holes, the shrapnel tears indicate a smaller weapon, uh, such as an S5, which actually Alselmo, Amar Alselmo, uh, mentioned specifically in the video as one of the weapons that was fired by aircraft, uh, the Russian aircraft that supposedly carried out the, the attack. Well, it also turns out, as I was able to, to uh, document, that S-5s are part of the arsenal that the opposition has controlled ever since 2012. And they've been using them for ground-to-ground -ground attacks uh, with their own improvised uh, apparatus to fire them. So this um, the, the story really uh, it is, you know, very, very fishy and leaves open uh, the obvious possibility. And I would say at this point, more probable, a greater probability that this was an attack, a ground attack by somebody who would have the uh, the the uh, reason for carrying out a ground attack at that point against the convoy. Well, it would be the opposition to have it be blamed, of course, on the Russians and the Syrian government. And and of course, they were totally successful in large part because of the white helmets. Yeah. Well, and so and this is where we go to other reporting at Alternate here and um, specifically by Max Blumenthal about who's behind these white helmets anyway. And right. it's basically it's the CIA and Al Qaeda, <laughs> more or less. Well, it's, I mean, I don't know that the CIA is involved. I don't think the CIA ever had. Well, USAID. I, I lump in NED and USAID yeah, yeah. with the CIA, but I shouldn't. You're right. Yeah. The State Department has publicly said that we give them something like $30 million a year. The UK has publicly said that they give them like $50 million a year. Uh, I can't remember the exact amount. 
so yeah, I mean the, the Western Western governments are openly supporting them, but I, I think the key thing is that they are clearly working under the authority of Al Qaeda, and they reflect Al Qaeda's political line. And this guy Amar Al Selmo, it also turns out that he was seen, uh, he he was photographed in a picture with other armed men. He was part of an armed group. Uh, in 2012. Now, we don't know which armed group it was. It was never identified, but he admitted it when it was documented by a Der Spiegel correspondent. He admitted, yeah, he'd been in an armed group, but he claimed he never fired a shot. (laughs) Well, and there's plenty of uh, photographic video and still picture evidence of white helmets palling around with all those three guys. And not just like, oh, hey, I'm just the ambulance driver, but clearly part of their same militia. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I don't know that they're that they're integrated into the militia, but that they're integrated into the larger system. That's clear. And I'm not saying that they don't rescue people. I'm sure they have done some rescues, but uh, but they do have uh, very clearly a a political uh, PR function for the op- for the Al Qaeda controlled opposition. Yeah, who ever heard of an ambulance driver whose top priority is filming himself rescue somebody? You yeah, know, yeah. instead of just getting a rescue done, it's kind of yeah. an emergency. Would you put the camera down for a minute, please? Right, right. You and know? by the way, despite the fact that that he that uh, Selmo had a team of supposedly ten people with him, all of whom had cell phones, not a single one of them ever did a video of this supposed. Air attack. Oh, yeah. There's the dog that didn't bark. Here. There's the dog that didn't bark. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, These guys who video everything, they don't have video of that biggest event. And, you know, it's I don't know if it's 100 percent proven fact, but sure is, you know, far beyond uh, just simple probability or something that Seymour Hersh's reporting stands up that the Al-Nusra Front has tried to false flag the United States into war there in Damascus. So the idea that uh, they would do a false flag in order to just sabotage a ceasefire is not much of a stretch if you want to go back to the sarin attack of 2013. Look, I'm going to admit that initially, uh, immediate in the, in the two or three, four days after that attack, um, I assumed that it was probably a Russian-Syrian attack, Russian and or Syrian attack. Because they were so angry with the United States uh, over the uh, attack two days earlier uh, in Deir Azur. But uh, and so so when I really began this, uh, that was my assumption. But I, you know, I realize now I was totally wrong. I mean, I think that it's pretty clear at this point that this was, in fact, an Al Qaeda uh, opposition attack. And by the way, uh, John McCreary, who. Uh, I think some of your listeners are familiar with uh, who does Nightwatch, uh, a a daily um, account of what's happening in in national security issues around the world, has chronicled what the Russian um, command has put out about this attack. And he points out, and I missed this, I have to admit, I wasn't looking at that angle on this. The Russians uh, have very specific documentation or, or claims of documentation showing that they could trace the um, the rockets, the, the ground-based rockets, ground-fired rockets, back to al-Nusra-controlled territory. Uh, and so this guy, uh, John McCreary, who was a former high-ranking DIA uh, uh, analyst, uh, in fact, does believe that this was a uh, an opposition uh, ground attack on the convoy. Yeah, well... Um... So then what about the attack at Deir Zor? Uh, do you know if anybody has ever really tried to nail down for sure well, whether that was an accident or whether that was uh, a deliberate insubordination and, and sabotage by the DOD of the president's policy and the secretary of state's ceasefire here? Well, I mean, I said in my earlier story about this um, that the the overall you know timeline and uh, statements that were indicating the, the Department of Defense and the the overall commander of the uh, the Air Force uh, uh, part of of uh, Central Command, who runs the entire show of of airstrikes in both uh, Syria and Iraq, were very skeptical about uh, you know collaborating with the Russians, and uh, that that this. Uh, 
attack on Derozor clearly was a, a a precipitating the precipitating factor more than anything else in the decision by the Russians and the Syrians to say, okay, this ceasefire is over. We're not going to try to continue this. Uh, clearly, on the on the assumption that the U.S. government was uh, was not going to support a ceasefire, they had other other interests. So uh, so that's the that's the sort of overall picture. I'm now working on a piece that will uh, basically attack this very flimsy uh, so-called investigation report uh, that was issued yesterday. It, it is it reminds me very much of the case of the investigation that McChrystal ordered after the uh, February 2010 uh, JSOC uh, night raid on Gardez, which killed the three uh, three women, two of whom were pregnant, and two two guys who worked for the Iran, uh, the Afghan government. And then then they covered it up, and and McChrystal decided to cover up the cover up, and part of that cover up of the cover up was to call for a second investigation. And that investigation, of course, said, "Oh, nothing, nothing to see here. Move on." Um, and 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 in order to do that, he named as the investigator somebody who he knew would be under his command shortly. Well, guess what? The person who investigated this—I'm giving away my best lines, okay? But for your listeners, I'm going to tell them that the investigator who announced his findings yesterday was actually working for the Air Force commander whose responsibility this was to, to making this decision to carry out the, the strike. Oh, there you go. Heard it here first, everybody. Hey, listen, let me ask you one more thing. I'm sorry, I know I've already kept you 40 minutes here, but um, I need to ask you about Aleppo now because yesterday, Madeline, yes, we think the price is worth it, Albright and Stephen. Here's those Niger uranium forgeries you wanted, <laughs> sir. Hadley uh, put out a new report saying that we got to bomb Damascus in order to save al-Qaeda in eastern Aleppo. But then the Washington Post story about it lamented the fact that, geez, by the time Trump takes power, the Russians and the Syrian government will have already taken all of Aleppo from al-Qaeda. And so what a sad story. Uh, I wonder what you think about that. Well, I think you've you've correctly uh, given an appreciation of what's really going on in Washington right now. I mean, this is this is an expression of the sorrow and sadness of the uh, the democratic uh, well so the democratic and republican um, national security elite who are who have been behind the uh, the U.S. policy of uh, of arming and training people who were allied with Al Qaeda and in fact providing cover for Al Qaeda in northern Iraq uh, in northern Syria. Uh, for the last several years, um, who who really you know are committed to this idea now uh, in the way that only the national security elite can become committed to something that is totally disastrous for U.S. interests, um, and and I think they are genuinely afraid that this is all going to go down the drain under the Trump administration for good reason because I think. Uh, Trump has this is one of the few things that he seems to be pretty clear on. Yeah, that he's not enthusiastic about this at all. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, so dang it. Now I can't let you go anymore because I got to ask you another thing, too, which is about. Um, so where does this really leave us with Iran? Because here we have a president and a cabinet, national security cabinet forming around him who, you know, clearly this is part of the job application is you got to agree with him about Syria and Russia that we're backing off of both. Um, you know, and meaning not well, that's not backing case. off uh, bombing Syria, but backing yeah. off bombing Damascus. They're still bombing the Islamic State in the east, and and maybe we'll be picking up more bombing of Al Nusra. So I don't mean to imply any kind of peaceful policy, but he's surrounded by people who hate Iran. So he wants to get along with Russia, but they they hate Iran, and so. You know, I don't know if Trump even understands that it's America, Israel, Turkey and the Sunnis versus Russia, Iran, Iraq and the yeah. Shiites, Syria and Hezbollah in this in this split at all. Like, is, is not, Donald Trump I, as confused as Mike Flynn? I would not be confident at all that that uh, Donald Trump understands fully the the alignments uh, certainly, he doesn't. He doesn't understand the sequence of developments that has brought us to where we are. I mean, we can count on that. However, 
I, I think that there there has been a uh, a, a false uh, picture of what Trump's thinking is about the nuclear agreement with Iran. Virtually every big media piece that I have seen on this subject says, oh, you know, he wants to, to tear up the agreement and start over again. Well, that's not true. I mean, he did, he did in fact write an op-ed piece in 2015 saying that. But during the campaign, he was pretty careful not to get himself committed to that position. And when he spoke to AIPAC, you know, his big thing was, I'm going to enforce this agreement to the hilt. And uh, right. he, he also said, look, we've got a contract. He's, he's used the term, we've got a contract. Uh, so this is one of the things on which it's very interesting. Trump appears to, to have an elementary grasp of the reality that the United States is committed and it's not gonna be a very good idea to tear this up. So that is one of the points you know, I'm not saying we don't know who he's going to name as secretary of defense and secretary of state. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be very important because if he names people who are committed, really personally, strongly committed to tearing up that agreement, then it's a different ballgame. And, and we yeah. just don't know exactly how it's going to play out. And, you know, as I've said many times, I mean, you know, well, if it's Corker well, for state, I think we can rest assured a little bit because Corker at least was the guy who pretended to try to kill the deal when actually he was shepherding it through. Absolutely. That would be a good sign for sure in that regard. But but, um, you know, if if we had people in both positions who were committed to, uh, you know, doing damage, serious damage to the agreement, plus Flynn, who is on the record as mm -hmm. uh, calling for that although he might change his mind too. Um, that, that would be a bad set of dynamics based on the history of how these things play out. Yeah. Uh, a president with his own views coming to office, fairly convinced about things and then being pushed very hard by his national security team. So that there's a degree of uncertainty about that. Yeah. Well, you know, back to the beginning, you mentioned that the, the JSOC war, McChrystal and Mike Flynn killing people in Iraq, it, they weren't just fighting on the Shiite side of the civil war against the Sunni-based insurgency and their al-Qaeda allies. They were also fighting against the Shiites at the same time, at least the That's third right. major leg on the Shiite alliance of Skiri, um, Dawa, and, uh, and the Mahdi army. They're attacking the Mahdi army. And that yeah. raises the question to me, I don't know, maybe there are already published anecdotes about this, but doesn't it make sense that Sauter's guys would have killed some of McChrystal's guys? And some of Mike Flynn's men were were shot dead at the hands of Mahdi army types, and everybody knows those special groups are trained by Iran, Gareth, remember 2007? That's why, that's, so there's a real personal grudge here, possibly, against Iran, and a, even though this idiot was fighting a war for Iran in Iraq that whole time, <laughs> you could see why he'd be pissed off maybe if some of his friends are dead at the hands of what they would blame on an Iranian EFP or whatever, right? If I'm not mistaken, uh, Scott, in his book with Michael Ledeen, uh, Flynn actually talks about how many Americans, uh, American troops were killed by Russia, by, by Iranian IEDs or, or e EFPs, excuse me, EFPs. And of course, his figures were totally wrong. But Nevertheless, I think it makes the point that you've just uh, it documents the point you've just made, which is that he has a personal grudge against Iran uh, in part because of that. Yeah. And you can see how I mean, if that was you, then never mind the big picture that the whole war was for Iran and that Sadr is still part of the force that backs, you know, the consensus that backs the current government in Iraqi Shiite stand that now includes all of Baghdad because of him, right? Never mind any of that. If Johnny's dead because he got shot by uh, one of Sadr's men, then that's personal. And the fact that he actually, McChrystal and, and Flynn themselves were actually Sadr's little sock puppets the whole time <laughs> is sort of beside the point. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, the, the, the bigger point here is, I think, that People like Flynn and even McChrystal, uh, you know, exist within a, uh, a system that never fully grasps the larger picture of things. I mean, they, they, they have their focus straight ahead on what their missions are, and they can't afford to really have a wider lens that really appreciates 
the history and the the complicated politics that are surrounding what they're doing on the battlefield. So, I mean, you know, this is just uh, another aspect of the limitations, very severe limitations intellectually of these people who who carry out America's wars. Yeah, you had me at co-authored with Michael Ledeen. All right. Um, yeah, it's the great Gareth Porter, everybody, independent historian and journalist. He's at Middle East Eye and at truthout.org. And the book is Manufactured Crisis, the truth behind the Iran nuclear scare. These two articles, Trump's national security advisor facilitated the murder of civilians in Afghanistan at Truthout and how a Syrian white helmets leader played Western media. That one is at Alternate, the Gray Zone project there. Thank you so much again, Gareth. Appreciate it. Thank you, Scott. All right, y'all. That's the Scott Horton Show. Check out the archives and sign up for the RSS feeds and iTunes and Stitcher and all those things at libertarianinstitute.org slash Scott Horton Show. And it's our big fun drive uh, for the end of the year and the start of our new institute there at libertarianinstitute.org slash support. And uh, we're fully nonprofits. You can write it off on your taxes. So wouldn't you rather give it to us than them? Of course, uh, that's libertarianinstitute.org slash support. And thank you all very much. Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. This part of the Scott Horton Show is sponsored by Audible.com. And right now, if you go to audibletrial.com slash Show, you can get your first audiobook for free. Of course, I'm recommending Michael Swanson's book, The War State, The Cold War Origins of the Military-Industrial Complex and the Power Elite. Maybe you've already bought The War State in paperback, but you just can't find the time to read it. Well, now you can listen while you're out marching around. Get the free audiobook of The War State by Michael Swanson, produced by Listen and Think Audio at audibletrial.com slash Show.